All right, thank you guys so much for coming to Sunday School this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and start off with a word of prayer, and we will begin our discussion on chapters 11 to 15. Lord, we are just so grateful for another Sunday to come, to quiet our hearts, to open your word, to consider what it is that you would teach us this morning. Father, as we kind of review some chapters that we've already read this week, I ask that perhaps lessons we've learned um, Monday to Friday would be solidified here this morning. Perhaps uh, new insights would be drawn out. But more importantly, Lord, I ask that you would increase our awe and our love for you and for your word, that we would be consistently reminded that this is our authority that does record history. Um, please, Lord, just make us better students of you because of uh, what we do here this morning and uh, not help us also to just live out some of the applicational things that we see here in the book of Acts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We are more than halfway through the book of Acts at this point in our reading plan, and I trust uh, you've just appreciated seeing the advance of the gospel as we read through these chapters. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me early on was the boldness of Peter in the span of like 50 days from denying Christ to boldly proclaiming his name. Uh, I'm sure other insights have stood out to you guys. But as we begin this morning, I want you to imagine or put yourself in the shoes of someone in the book of Acts who is both Jewish by heritage and has also become a Christian. I want you to think about some of the challenges that would have presented itself as these two, I'll say, cultures or worlds or movements kind of collide. Again, you are someone who is Jewish by birth and heritage, who has become a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, in a Jewish sense, there are certainly as you all know, some laws that you would have ascribed to or lived your life by. What are some of the Jewish laws that come to mind almost immediately that you would have been living from birth? What, what are some of the things that you would have done? Mike? Dietary restrictions. Dietary restrictions, right? The big one is no pork. <laughs> that one just strikes us as like, how did you live like that? We love bacon, right? But no pork if you're a Jew. What are some of the other things that you would have done? Lynn? Circumcision, if you're a male, certainly. Yes, Bonnie. Sacrificing animals, yes. Any other laws or guidelines? Shane. The Sabbath, yes. Anybody else? 
Yes, the holidays, the feasts. Uh, if you were a Jew, there were restrictions on how much of your field you could glean, how much you had to leave for other people to get. Uh, there were all sorts of restrictions, things about the clothes you could wear, uh, how far you could travel on the Sabbath. Now, if you're a Jew, you received these laws from God on the mountain, right? This is something that your people have been doing for a thousand plus years. It's not something that is just kind of contained to, uh, you know, a couple holidays a year or a Sabbath day once a week. Judaism is really part of your culture. Everyone around you has been obeying these laws forever. But in the same breath, you have also become a follower of Jesus. And although Jesus is Jewish himself, he teaches a message that says that salvation and deliverance and righteousness is not by keeping this law that has become part of your everyday life. Salvation is through faith in him alone. And with the death of Jesus Christ, from our perspective as New Testament Christians, we know that immediately some of these Jewish practices became obsolete at the death of Christ. No more are sacrifices required for sins. No more is a priest necessary to intercede for you. Uh, Jesus had prior declared in, I think, Mark, that all foods were clean. But can you imagine being a Jew right here in the book of Acts, trying to navigate which things you still needed to follow, which things Jesus had made obsolete? Can you imagine if you become a follower of Jesus and like on a dime, everyone else around you is uh, still offering sacrifices and you're left thinking, okay, what do I do? Can you see some of the tension or the awkwardness that these people might have faced? We actually saw some of this in Acts chapter 10 with Peter. Remember Peter, he goes to Cornelius, but before that, he has this vision in which there is a giant sheet that descends from heaven, and on this sheet, there are all sorts of animals, and Jesus himself says to Peter, Peter, kill, eat, and what does Peter say? No. P Peter has the audacity to tell Jesus, no. Uh, I've never broken the dietary laws. I'm not going to start now. And this isn't just once that Peter says this. He says this three times to Jesus. Do you see how there's some tension here between what Peter actually would be allowed to do and his upbringing, his culture, his heritage, the Judaism that still was very much alive and well in him. When we come to Acts chapter 11 today, and in the weeks coming, even in Acts, into the epistles, we'll see some of these clashes between Judaism and what was expected of these people and what Jesus had freed them from in his own death and resurrection. So we'll begin in Acts chapter 11. Uh, Peter returns... Um, back to Jerusalem after Cornelius gets saved and re, uh, receives the Holy Spirit. And he's met with some opposition almost immediately. Look at verse 3. There are some people who come up to him and say, Hey, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. They similarly are having attention. Like, Peter, you are not following the law. You're eating with these uncircumcised guys. Uh, maybe we could backtrack just a little bit. I was trying to think of how, how difficult of an adjustment this would have been for Jewish people. 
to discern what is now available for them or not. And I thought of maybe if you or I drove, excuse me, flew over to the United Kingdom and got in a car for the first time, how awkward would it be to sit in what we consider the passenger seat and the steering wheel be in front of you? How awkward would it be for the very first time you got out on the road and you turn left and everyone is going left and everything in you is screaming, I'm going the wrong way. I'm driving on the left side of the road. And you have to, you know, to turn right, you have to cut across to traffic. I mean, it would be absolutely unnerving. I think that pales in comparison into what these people are experiencing. This goes against everything in their nature. Peter, I can't eat any animal I want. The people approach Peter and they say, what are you doing eating with these Gentiles? Not allowed. Peter rehearses everything that had just happened in chapter 10. And we come to this awesome conclusion in 11 uh, verse 17, where Peter concludes this. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's speaking about the spirit, who was I that I should stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, okay, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Peter says, the Gentiles have received the Spirit, too. This is no longer something that is just a, a product of Judaism. Jesus is available to all people. The rest of chapter 11 centers on the church in Antioch. I have a map here on the screen. I realize it is probably pretty hard to see. This is the best map I found online this week, though. The church in Antioch is way up here in the corner. And here is Jerusalem down here. Uh, this church in Antioch actually started as a product of the persecution of Stephen. We're told that after Stephen is killed, believers flee the area and they go to Phoenicia, they go to Cyprus over here, and then they flee to Antioch. And Antioch actually becomes really a pillar of the early church. From this location, uh, Barnabas and Paul are sent out on their missionary journeys. We're going to read a lot about the church of Antioch here in the book of Acts, but it's just fascinating to me that we've already seen the gospel in Acts 1 to 5 kind of move out of Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem, and now we are getting into quite a broad area that the gospel has spread, beginning here with the church in Antioch. And it is here that we come across our first question this week in Antioch. In verse 26, what name is given to followers of Jesus for the first time? Christians. Yes, really fascinating. A couple of people that I read pointed out that this title was most likely an insult. It was most likely given to these followers of Jesus as like a you follow Christ? Christians. And yet the name stuck. And it became something that we call ourselves even to this day. And according to Acts 19, 23 and Acts 24, 5, what other names were used to describe Christianity in its early days? We see a lot of like synonyms for Christianity, kind of interesting ones. What are some of the other names that we see for Christianity? Hava. 
The way. Yes. What's the second one? The sect of the Nazarenes. Yeah, interesting that Christians didn't really have a title in the early days here of the church, and people are uh, attributing to them to the way, the sect of the Nazarenes, and Antioch Christians. All of these have a connection to Jesus, though, right? We're not totally sure where the way came from, but does anyone want to take a stab at maybe the best guess as to where that name originated? How about... Yeah, totally. That's our best guess, is that Jesus said, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And actually, if you're paying close attention, this phrase, the way, appears a handful of times in the book of Acts. It's really interesting. And then the sect of the Nazarenes, obviously Jesus was from Nazareth, and people are just equating his followers with the Nazarenes. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I, I was kind of thinking, maybe a little bit outside the scope of this question, but it seems that, unfortunately, the name Christian has become kind of muddied today. It's not as distinctive as maybe we would like. Uh, For instance, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Catholics, I'll call themselves Christians. Have you guys found any other designator or title for Christians that really helps to, like, identify who we are that is even maybe more specific than Christians? Yeah, Hutch. Born again. again. Yeah, I think that's a great one. Any of them? Anyone else? Bonnie. Okay. Tell me. Believers. Believers. Yeah, I heard, uh, I heard someone say once that they say, instead of, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. Really puts the onus on you. I follow Jesus every single day. Yeah, really interesting. Anyone else? Okay, we'll move on to the second question here. Uh, while they are in Antioch, Agabus makes this prophecy. He comes up from Jerusalem. And in verses 27 to 30, what event did Agabus prophesy about? Jeff. Yeah, a worldwide famine. Now, a famine back then was probably much more intimidating than a famine today. I mean, we have canned goods. We have all these ways that we can preserve food. But a famine back in ancient times uh, would have made a scarcity of food Uh, The food that did remain would have been sky high in prices. And so how did the believers in Antioch respond to the news that there was a worldwide famine uh, coming? Tammy. Yeah. Again, we'll look at our map here. These people all the way up in Antioch like 300 miles away from Jerusalem. They hear the news that a worldwide famine is coming. And rather than hoarding their own resources and wealth and food, they think there are other believers who are going to be hurting this time. And they take up a collection and they put together a gift for these people in Jerusalem. And one of the applicational questions then from this section, what are some practical things that we can do to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even those who live far away? Any thoughts on that? T. Totally. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Pray for them. Yeah, that's a great idea. 
Anyone else? Yeah, totally. What, what an example for us that here is this church in Antioch. And upon hearing about tough times that are going to befall everyone, and, and rather than just like looking internally, their first thought is, who can we help? Who needs some support and encouragement at this time? And they identify this church in Jerusalem. And they take up a collection for them. As I was just, again, thinking more about this this week, you know, I was just reminded that there is a responsibility of believers to take care of other believers. Sometimes we're content to let organizations do that work. We let the Red Cross do what we should be doing. And I just think that from the scriptures... These are really our brothers and sisters in Christ. And can we not love them enough to maybe even give financially towards people halfway around the world who are suffering and hurting? I think that would be a great testimony of the love that we have, not just for the 80 people in this room, but for people who share Christ with us. As we come to chapter 12, right out of the gate, uh, who joins in on persecuting the church? Jeff. Herod. Yes. Uh, We're told that he kills James. And uh, maybe just a quick note, this is not the Herod that Jesus stood before back in the Gospels. And uh, maybe you're thinking there were two Herods in Scripture. Actually, there's like five or six scattered throughout biblical history. Uh, There's a Herod that is present uh, way back in Matthew chapter 1 who kills all of the babies in Bethlehem. There's a Herod even beyond the one that's mentioned here that I think maybe Paul kind of stands before. There are Herods everywhere in Scripture. It was kind of just like a family name that was uh, given to this ruling dynasty in Israel at the time. And he takes James... Uh, Again, there's a couple of James in scriptures. This is the Apostle James, and he puts him to death. And to me, James's death just felt pretty weighty as I read about it, particularly considering that James was one of the the three in Jesus' inner circle. Right? James is there when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. Uh, James is like one of Jesus' closest friends, and Christianity is so um, polarizing at this point that it's nothing for Herod to put this guy to death. It's like, hmm, the persecution is really ramping up for something like this to happen. And how do the Jews respond to the death of James? Lynn, they're pleased. They're okay with it. This is something now that is happening on a couple of fronts. There's a political persecution. There's the religious persecution of the Jewish people against Christianity. And everyone is ganging up on him. So much so that Herod actually takes Peter and imprisons him and plans on doing the very same thing to Peter that he had already done to James. But according to verses 5 and 12, what is the church doing while Peter is in prison? Diane. Praying. Yeah, I think verse 5 says they are earnestly praying. Uh, We're told in Acts 12 here that literally the very next day, 
Peter is going to be brought out before the people and presumably killed. This seems like a very frantic and urgent time in the church's history. Ah, Peter! And rather than, you know, just, you know, make an appeal to Herod or something, they're praying. What an example to us when our life gets a little frantic, when we feel under the gun, if you will, and we're tempted to just panic, these people pray. And we know the story, an angel comes to Peter, he's shackled between a couple of guards, he frees Peter, like, hey, wake up. <laughs> kind of, you know, you almost get the impression that he like kicks him or something, and then he says, put your coat on, and he drags him out of prison, and the gates are opening, and Peter's just like in shock. He doesn't even realize that what is happening is true until he leaves the city, and he goes over to this prayer meeting. We know that Rhoda doesn't recognize Peter initially, and, you know, the people are like, ah, that's just his angel that you're seeing. But eventually, Peter, um, you know, they come to the door, they see Peter, uh, he interacts with them, their prayers are answered, and he, like, pretty quickly gets out of there. He knows that if he's found the same thing's going to happen. And the next morning, Herod um, sees that Peter is gone, questions the guards, and actually puts them to death for uh, letting Peter out of there. Yeah, really interesting. But that's not the last we hear of Herod. In verses 21 to 23, why was Herod put to death? Copy. He took God's glory. Yeah, what specifically happened in this account? Hutch. Yeah, he goes and he gives this great speech. And when he's done, the people are shouting, this is the voice of a God and not a man. And the scriptures say that immediately Herod was struck down and eaten by worms, kind of gruesome there. But because he gave the glory not to God, but he took it for himself. Then a more sobering question, what warning should this account provide for us today? Bonnie. Yeah, God will not be mocked. Any other thoughts from this? Humility. Humility, certainly. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Tammy? There's only one God. Yeah, there's only one God. As I was just thinking about this, maybe a little bit more applicationally, it's unlikely that anyone is probably ever going to come up to us and replicate the same set of circumstances that Herod experienced. Probably no one is going to say, whoa, you're a god. But are there not times when in our own lives and hearts we can begin to take credit for things that God deserves the glory for? We can begin to see the successes that have taken place in our life. We're financially stable. We seem to be well-liked. Everything is going well for us. And we straighten our tie a little bit. And we say, yeah, I do work pretty hard. Yeah, I have really developed myself. We say, hmm, I am always putting myself in the right place at the right time and taking these opportunities. And yeah, I am pretty awesome. And when we come to those conclusions, 
We are not too dissimilar from Herod in this situation. Who says, yeah, I am pretty awesome. God strikes him down. Can I remind you of God's disposition towards pride? James says that God, what? Opposes the proud. If you want God to be in opposition to you, then be proud. But what does he do to the humble? He gives grace. Yeah. Really interesting. You know, sometimes we think we have arrived at the place we are today because of our upbringing. And yet we forget that God is the one who placed us into that family. We think that we are so awesome because of all the hard work we've done and the opportunities we've had and forget that our view of the sovereignty of God tells us that God gave us those opportunities, that he put us in those circumstances. And so to claim that credit for ourselves really is, I think like Bonnie was saying, to make a mockery of God, like Temi said, to claim that we are gods, to elevate ourselves to his position and say, yeah, I am responsible for all of these good things that happened in my life. Really interesting here. I, I, I would encourage certainly some more meditation on God's disposition towards pride and the responsibility that we have as Christians to be humble. Certainly, it should be a pattern of our life that we are constantly giving God glory because we realize none of this is from me. This is all from God. Uh, sometimes we think of giving God glory as a little nebulous, even 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 31, that talks about eating and drinking to the glory of God. Sometimes we can le be left thinking, what does that mean exactly? Am I supposed to take a drink and say, you know, this is to the glory of God? But in Herod's example here, it is not unclear as to what giving God glory would have looked like. It, it is not taking credit for the good things uh, that are a result of God's grace in our life. I appreciate the closing remark in chapter 12, verse 24. Here Herod is at the beginning of this chapter, uh, killing James, capturing Peter and putting him in prison. But verse 24 says, the word of God increased and multiplied. And we're just reminded that although there are wicked men who stand in opposition to the gospel, it cannot thwart God's word. We come to chapter 13 and we're introduced to Paul's missionary journeys. I'm sure you've heard of them before. Uh, his first one kind of spans chapters 13 and 14. The first missionary journey, I told you this already, begins here in Antioch. And you can kind of see the progression that Paul takes as he starts off in Antioch, moves on over to Cyprus. It's here in Cyprus that he is first called Paul for the first time. Uh, in Cyprus, there is this Roman proconsul who is converted. And then Paul and Barnabas, they move up to Perga here in Perga. Uh, John Mark actually deserts them and he returns back to Jerusalem. And then the missionary journey really starts to heat up when they come to this city up here called also Antioch, but this one is in Pisidia. Paul and Barnabas come to this city and Paul uh, stands up in the synagogue and he preaches uh, a, a sermon that is similar to Stephen's. We looked at Stephen's sermon last week. Uh, he gives an account of pretty much all of Israel's history from like 
even before Joseph, I think the Exodus, and he just kind of works them all the way through like present day. And it's all in an attempt to uh, kind of turn the accusations that were made against him back on his accusers. They had said, Stephen, you are trying to uh, change the law of Moses. You are working to, or teaching this um, idea that Jesus is going to come back and destroy the temple. And, and Stephen just, in his history of Israel, turns those accusations back on them. Paul's sermon sounds a little similar, and I asked you to just go through uh, his sermon here and point out some key events or ideas. So first of all, what major... Uh, events or characters from Israel's history does Paul mention in his sermon? What are some of the things that Paul points out to us? Dave? The 40 years of of wandering in the wilderness. Yeah, what else does he mention? Temi? Yes, he mentions a lot of scripture. We'll come back to that for point number two. Any other just key events that he is rehearsing? There are several of them. Uh, Certainly, the captivity in Egypt and the Exodus, like Dave mentioned, uh, the wilderness wandering. Paul mentions entering the promised land. He mentions some key figures like Samuel and Saul and David. And what are some of the Old Testament scriptures that Paul references? Again, there are several. I'm curious if you tracked those down with a reference at all. He's quoting Old Testament scriptures. In the ESV, they are kind of set apart in paragraph form. Does anyone know which scriptures he's citing from the Old Testament? Yeah. Yeah, he mentions a ton of Old Testament scriptures throughout this sermon. He's just weaving in scripture after scripture after scripture, uh, just reinforcing this, you know, Old Testament. Uh, narrative that he is working through. And and I wanted to ask you then maybe a more thoughtful question. Why do you think Paul chooses to organize his sermon with so many references to Israel's history, with so many Old Testament scriptures scattered throughout? Why is he going through the pains of doing this? Any ideas? Yes, that is, yeah, and and why is that important? You're on the right track, Dave. That is awesome. Anyone else? Maybe just connect that last puzzle piece there. Yes, exactly. Paul is in a synagogue. He is in a Jewish place of worship. What would happen, you tell me, if Paul just stands up and says, hey, I want to introduce you to this guy, Jesus. You need to believe in him and have eternal life. What's going to happen? He's not going to get another word out. Here are these Jewish people that are going to say, get out of here. You're teaching a new religion. This is not the place for that. But like Pastor John just pointed out, and Dave, Paul knows his audience. He knows where he is. He knows that these people need to be held by the hand, so to speak, and walked through the Old Testament and be shown from their Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is not a new religion. He is not someone who is competing with them. He has originated from them. This is the guy that the Old Testament scriptures have talked about. We share a common ground here. And he, and he helps them to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of their scriptures. 
Now, what lesson, this wasn't on the sheet here, but what lesson can we learn from what Paul is doing here? How can we apply this to everyday life? Know your audience. Absolutely. Let me give you a hypothetical example. Let's say you were talking to someone who is unchurched, maybe even never heard the name of Christ before. Are you going to launch into a seminary-level like exposition of justification and sanctification and glorification and propitiation and just use all these words with that person? No. I would be impressed if you could articulate all of those ideas, let alone this person who has never even heard the gospel before. Can we know our audience and communicate at times what can be big words and big truths in simple ways to people? and help them understand, like at a kindergarten level, that we are at enmity with God right now? That our sin has driven a wedge between us and him? That we're deserving of punishment, just like everyone else who commits a crime, they get punished. So too, when we commit crimes against God, are we punished. But there's good news. Jesus has come to make peace between us and God. This is how you articulate these very complicated ideas. Know your audience. It's exactly what Paul is doing here. I think it's really interesting just to observe Paul here in Acts chapter 13, talk to Jewish people in Acts chapter 17. We'll see Paul talk to Gentile people, and he doesn't start off with Moses and the Exodus. And what do Gentiles care? Right? He knows his audience. He has a different starting point when he talks to different groups of people. Second question. This should read Paul. How does Paul describe the work of Christ in verse 39? As he finishes up his sermon to these Jewish people, what does Paul say? that Jesus has done. Yeah, and what, what previously were they not free under? The law of Moses. Just an awesome description here of what Jesus does. He frees people from what the law couldn't. When you look at, I think it's 2 Corinthians, calls the law of Moses the ministry of death, the ministry of condemnation doesn't mean it was a bad thing necessarily, but it does mean that under the law of Moses, it was painfully obvious to people that they could not keep it. And it left them condemned. They were dead under it. But Jesus, he's come to do what the law can't. He frees you truly from it by keeping it himself and making righteousness available to everyone by faith. Yeah, pretty awesome. In Acts chapter 14, again, we'll look at the map here. Paul and Barnabas, they are in Antioch, and they move over to Iconium, this city right here, and they're met with a little bit of hostility. I think they want to stone him. They actually leave Antioch for the same reason, that people are persecuting them. The Jewish people have like an uproar against them, and they flee to Iconium. They're not met well there. And then they come to Lystra, And interestingly enough, Paul encounters a guy in Lystra who I think is crippled, and he heals him. And upon healing him, the people are like in total shock. They start saying, 
The gods are among us. Here's Zeus and Hermes. They, they, they start like worshiping Paul and Barnabas. In fact, the uh, priest of the temple of Zeus comes with like some ox, oxen to come and like offer a sacrifice to them. How do Paul and Barnabas respond to being hailed as a deity and contrast that to Herod from just a couple of chapters ago? Brenda. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Jeff. Yes. Yes. They use, when people are worshiping them, they use it as an opportunity to deflect the glory to God and to say, we are here to tell you about the true and living God, to turn from your vain ways. Worship him. How easy would it have been for Paul and Barnabas to get caught up in the moment? I mean, can you imagine, like, tons of people worshiping you, ready to offer a sacrifice to you, and you're thinking, hmm, I wonder how long I can milk this for. Like, <laughs> these people really seem to like me a lot. And yet, they are humble, like Brenda pointed out. And they say, they run out into the crowds and they say, don't do this. Turn from your vain ways to the true and living God. Yeah. Now, we have a second question. In verses 19 to 23, who persuades the crowds to stone Paul in Lystra? I mean, he is, there's like a complete 180 here. Paul goes from being heralded as a god in Lystra to almost immediately people are stoning him. Who is it that kind of turns the crowd against Paul? This is interesting. From where? Antioch and Iconium. Remember, these are the two cities that Paul was just at. Here's Antioch. Here's Iconium. He's in Lystra. And they come, these two cities come to Lystra, and they stir the crowd up against Paul. Paul, after he's stoned, he's miraculously raised from the dead almost, it seems. Uh, And then he goes on to Derbe. But according to verse 21... Does being stoned intimidate the Apostle Paul into silence? And what tells you the answer to that question? How do you know that? Brenda. Okay, certainly. But for what reason can you tell on the map here that Paul is not intimidated by these threats? Temi. He went back to those places. Yeah, let's look at the map again. This is really interesting. So Paul flees Lystra after he is stoned, and he goes to Derby. And we know ultimately he's trying to end up in Antioch. And if we're like really good at geography, we think, okay, if you want to escape all the people that hate you, uh, the shortest distance between two points would be this way, right? That makes sense. Don't go back where these people just stoned you. But after Paul is done in Derby. rather than going the short way to Antioch, he goes back to Lystra, where he was stoned. He goes back to Iconium, back to Antioch, where these people hate him. And he goes back there, and he encourages the believers. 
It's fascinating. Paul cannot be silenced. This message of Jesus is too important to get scared and to stop speaking about. What a model for us. And what does he tell the believers in verse 22? What counsel does he offer them? Lynn. Yeah, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul is just communicating here that the Christian life is not easy. That on the journey towards the kingdom of God, if you will, that is the Christian life, people aren't just going to give you a hug every time they see you and say, wow, we love Jesus and we love you so much. In fact, the epistles warn us that the Christian life is going to be met with persecution. Here's just one such passage that says that. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Followers of Jesus should expect a measure of persecution. And maybe that'd be a good litmus test for our own lives. Are we being persecuted? Or are we living such a carefully, you know, constructed Christianity that we can get along pretty well with everyone and not, you know, live so much like Jesus that it would draw uh, persecution upon ourselves. No need to answer that, but maybe just something to think about. When Paul and Barnabas returned back to Antioch in chapter 15, they are met with a teaching. How would you describe the teaching that they encounter in chapter 15? What is being taught to them? Jeff. Yeah, exactly. Specifically, these people were saying that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. Here again, we see this blending of Judaism and Christianity. But like Jeff just pointed out, in a general sense, what they were doing is adding works to salvation. Do you see that? They're saying that it's Christ, certainly, and something else. Paul and Barnabas, I think Acts says, they have no small dissension with people who are teaching this. How does Galatians kind of clarify what Paul believes about this issue of the necessity of circumcision for salvation? What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 5? All right, Paul says this, verse 2, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verses 3 and 4, if you accept circumcision, you are obligated to keep the whole law, not just one aspect of it. In verse 6, he makes this statement that in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul is very clear, we are not adding anything to Christ. There are these Jewish people who are saying, you need to add a circumcision. There's one aspect of the law that has historically been the way that we mark people who are the covenant people of God. And Paul says, no. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We cannot add anything to this. Who speaks up on this issue in verse 7? This becomes quite an argument and all kinds of people are chiming in. Who speaks up in verse 7? Peter, and what does Peter conclude about the issue? 
and verse 11. Lynn. Yeah, we cannot add anything to salvation. This teaching that people were propagating here in the early church, that we need to incorporate some of the law and some of Christianity to be saved. No, salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, we live in, you know, a different age, but same tactics are being used today. People are still hearing that salvation is partly through Christ, but partly through our own works, partly through giving to the church and living a good life and this or that or the other. And we have to have the same fervor in combating this false teaching and saying, no, salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. Last question here. Chapter 15 ends with a disagreement. What do Paul and Barnabas disagree about? Yes, they want to go on a second missionary journey. Paul proposes, hey, let's go back through the cities we visited uh, just prior to this and encourage the believers. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark. Paul says, no way. This is the same guy who ditched us earlier. It gets a little bit more complicated because Barnabas and John Mark are actually cousins. There's a family relationship there. Unfortunately, we see Christians disagree. But what is a positive outcome of the separation that takes place here at the end of chapter 15. Diane. Yeah, in having this disagreement, Paul takes Silas and goes back up through Asia Minor. Barnabas takes John Mark and they go to Cyprus. And so we have two groups of missionaries that get sent out. Yeah, really interesting. Uh, Just keep your eye out this week as we're reading, particularly on maybe some more of these clashes between Judaism and Christianity. This is something that uh, Galatians particularly is combating, but that we see uh, glimpses of here in the book of Acts. And think about maybe how how you would navigate that or what advice uh, today we should give to people who uh, disagree with us about this matter. Let's pray. Lord, again, we're thankful to be here. Thank you for uh, just teaching us from your word this morning. I ask that as we consider some of the more applicational points from Sunday school this morning about how to be humble and to love Christians who are maybe even on the other side of the world, that you would really impress upon our hearts um, just a compassion there that we would um, demonstrate our love for them through certainly praying or cards or giving. But we would remember that we are not an island to ourselves, but we have brothers and sisters scattered throughout the world. Help us also to be humble, Lord. Unfortunately, we find ourselves uh, looking a lot like Herod at times and taking glory for ourselves. Let us be like Jesus and Paul and Barnabas even as they say, no, turn to the true and living God. Uh, We need your grace in this, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.